0: We're continuing uh, fresh. It's week number four where we're looking at some stories in the Bible and trying to say, God, what is your fresh word for us today from these stories that if you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard them. If you're not, maybe you're not. Uh, First first of all, turn in your Bible to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. It'll be in your message notes as well. It will be on the side screen, perhaps on your phone. But we're going to park ourselves in this passage for the entire day. In fact, the entire left hand side of your sermon notes is the passage we're going to work through. We're going to kind of stay on that. And then when we get to the end of our time together, we'll talk about some conclusions for us. But I wanted to start by just acknowledging a a situation that's pretty tough for me. Sometimes, Sometimes it's very difficult for me to make a choice. Now, that's not true all the time, and a lot of times as a leader, it's very easy for me. People come say, what do we want to do? And I'm, you know, A or B, and I make a decision. But sometimes making a choice is, is really challenging. You can see this, for instance, in the life of my family every time we go out to eat. The waiter or the waitress will walk to the table, and there's been plenty of time to look at the menu we all have our water because with six kids, nobody orders drinks because that's like $2.50 a piece, and that adds up a lot of money. Then there's tip on top of that and tax. So it's all waters at the table, and we've had four or five minutes now to look at the menu, and the waiter or the waitress comes up and says, what would you like? And I'm actually usually ready to go, and my sons are ready to go. We're kind of creatures of habit. We know the thing, and, but when it comes time for a particular member of our congregation to be addressed, the... Uh, The waiter looks at her and says, What would you like? And she's like, I I don't know. And I'm like, Honey, it's McDonald's. You know, you know, you know the menu. You know, this is not a challenging situation. Something's just really hard for people to make a decision. I feel this way. I felt this way the other day. We were going to go to the movies and, um, And I jumped online to see if we could get some tickets. And if if it's been a while, if you've never bought tickets online, there's a particular moment when you're buying tickets online for a concert or a movie that for me is just kind of stress-inducing. There comes a moment when you have to pick your seat. And the moment you pick your seat, you get about two minutes before you lose your seat where you have to fill everything else out. And that decision of where to sit is incredibly stressful for me. Like, I'm like, are these the best seats? Do I wanna sit in the mezzanine if we're gonna go see a play? Or, you know, what is a mezzanine? That's just a really stressful, that really is a really stressful situation, but you gotta make a decision. You got two minutes until they freeze out those seats and you can't get them anymore. Some decisions are incredibly difficult to make. The story we're gonna look at today, the entire country of Israel was in a rough situation. They had to make a decision. They were being called upon to make a decision. For about 200 years, Israel had been moving away from the worship of the one true God, the God that set them free from the land of Egypt, that gave a promise to their forefather Abraham that God would bless the world through them. And ultimately, that blessing we now know was Jesus. But for 200 years, they had been drifting. And God had been sending them different kings to lead the group of people. And at this particular time in the story we're looking at, there's a king by the name of Ahab, Ahab. And he's an interesting person. Ahab is kind of a spineless leader. And he kind of is for God. uh, Illustrated by, for instance, the two kids that he has. He has a kid by the name of Ahaziah and Jehoram. And both of their names, Ahaziah means owned by Jehovah, the God of Israel. And Jehoram means Jehovah is exalted. So it looks like maybe this guy's heart is for the Lord. But in almost every other area of his life... There's no real evidence that God is important to him. And he's married to a woman whose name is Jezebel and she really has the the reins tight on him and she's really running the country and her heart is not for God at all. Her heart is for the gods of the local area. And because of the influence she had and his weakness, All of Israel is kind of waffling between serving the God who set them free, who they have a relationship with, and being attracted to the gods who are indigenous to the area. Those gods in the area, if you read your Bible, they'll talk about Israelites having their hearts turned towards Baal. B-A-A-L. Now in Hebrew, it's pronounced Baal the Baal, but in English we just call it Baal and that's fine. And when I was a kid, I used to read these stories and hear these stories and I thought there was one God whose name was Baal, but that's not true at all. Baal was kind of the general term and it referred to many different types of gods. There was the Baal, the primary one who was the God of thunder and rain and in an agrarian society, you can see how that would be such an important thing. But then there were all other kinds of bales. There were fertility bales. There were war bales. There, there were prosperity bales. There was, you know, I want a good meal kind of bail. You could have a bale for everything. And bale was just the general catch-all term. And under Ahab and Jezebel, Israel's heart was split between the Lord who had been faithful and righteous... And their preoccupation with the life around them and their desire to get the best out of life and maybe control life. And so all the little segments of their life, there was an opportunity to serve not Jehovah, but one of these other Baals. This is the situation that our primary character today shows up on the scene and observes. His name is Elijah, and he's one of the most significant prophets of the Old Testament. His life is full of incredible things. But the story we're going to look at today is the, is the pinnacle of kind of his ministry and his work in the land of Israel. And Elijah's name is an indicator of where his faithfulness and his allegiance lie. His name is Elijah, or El, which is God, and Yah, which is the Lord. So his name literally means the Lord is God. And he's going to spend his life reminding Israel that out of all the options to give your allegiance to, there's one true God. And your commitment to that God and following that God and serving that God only would make all the difference. This was what his life would be. Now... What's interesting is sometimes I think, or at least maybe I did this, maybe you didn't, but I hear about these ancient cultures. I read the stories of the Bible and all these different gods that they serve. And it's a little easy for me to kind of get on an intellectual high horse and think, what kind of foolish people were those? They had a God for this and they had a a God for that. You know, it, it seems so... Well, uncultured and unrefined and unlearned, a very simplistic approach to life. Anything that you want to control, create a God for it. And then when you do that, maybe you can have a little influence over your destiny. That's what it appears to me until I stop and think about it more deeply. Here's the truth. Every single human being that has ever lived in this world, including those of us in this room and now, every single one of us are worshipers by design. We can't help it. We were created. We were designed. There's something in us that gravitationally pulls towards worship. Now, that word worship simply means worth. We worship what we believe has worth. Worship is really worthship. Worship is worthship. And in worship, we assign value, we assign importance to the thing that has our attention. And every single human being that's ever been born has a proclivity towards worship. We can't help it. Even those people that say, I'm not super religious... Well, you can no more turn off your worship drive by saying you're not religious than a single person can turn off their desire for intimacy by saying they're never gonna get married. It just doesn't happen. There's a tension that exists there in every single human being, and our lives are full. They're replete with opportunities for us to ascribe worth to things, for that to capture our imagination, our attention, and to get our efforts. And in the Bible... They're easy to identify because they're typically the valuable thing, the thing that wants to be controlled, the thing that has the attention of the people is typically a carved piece of stone or wood called an idol. In our modern day, it's not so obvious We don't often have in modern America, at least, little idols. You can certainly go to other parts of the world where they exist. But in America, we have idols that are not fashioned out of wood or stone, but they in the same way very much have the attention of our hearts. And sometimes they're a little harder to identify than maybe in some of these ancient cultures. But the truth is, if you pause for just a moment, you can see that some of the same things that had the attention of people in ancient times still have the attention of people today, perhaps even in this room. For instance, there was money. You know, just prosperity. The good life. And today we don't build little idols, you know, necessarily, but... People are still captivated and assigned value and worth, and sometimes they'll give their entire life to the pursuit of money in hopes of having a sense of security. They don't bow to an idol, but they do bow to the dollar. It happens. There are probably people in this room that if you were to pause and think reflectively, you could see, and it would be natural and normal, it happens a lot, that money might have a grip on your heart. There's just, you know, the idea of a healthy and happy family. The idea that, you know, if you could have a good family, you could have fulfillment in life and joy in life. And the idea of having the put-together family so captivates you. And you don't create a little idol and bow down to it so that you can get pregnant or make sure that your kids have, you know, the good life. But in the same way that they did back then, minus the idol, the idea of the put-together family and the better life, that has gripped your attention. And when things are turbulent at home, it goes beyond just normal concern to where even your identity, your role in the universe gets shaken because of challenges in the family. When your kids get older, perhaps, and they're not walking the path that you think they should, and you don't have the connection to them that you might want to have, it can sometimes leave adults bitter and unhappy because their families aren't fully put together. And for some people, they don't have a little idol, but their identity and their value is really in their accomplishments. I have to mention this one, because if there was an idol that has consistently gripped my heart, it's this. I have often found myself fighting and competing. Whenever I take profiles of what I'm good at, competing tends to rise to the top of the list. And if there was an opportunity for me to compete, I felt like I had to be the best. And the idea of accomplishment, Connected to my identity is something I have wrestled with and had to discover that the true God of the universe who created and made me and shaped me in my mother's womb, what he says about me is good enough and I don't need to prop up my identity because I've accomplished things that make other people be impressed. It's a challenge for me. I don't have an idol, but that thing vies for the attention of my heart. One of my favorite dead theologians, a gentleman by the name of John Calvin, I don't agree with everything that he said, but I agree with a lot, just like I do most theologians. One of of the things he said is that the human heart is an incredible idol-making factory. It's an incredible idol-making factory. That even if you don't see one on a stoop somewhere or on a ledge, if there's not an altar created, we will create one because our hearts are bent towards worship. And this is the situation in which Elijah comes up on the scene under the umbrella of Ahaz and Jezebel. And instead of having having temples to the one true God in the land of Israel, Jezebel has been directing Ahab's soldiers to go around killing the prophets and the priests of God and tearing down the temples and instead erecting buildings to these Baals. It's a horrible time in the land of Israel. And they've literally turned away from like seven of the Ten Commandments culture-wide. It's a really big deal. And so Elijah is beginning to speak with boldness to the authority that exists in Ahab and Jezebel. And he has prayed to God, and God has instructed him to tell Ahab and Jezebel that for three and a half years, it's not going to reign in Israel. And that's going to have a cascading impact on the culture. People are going to struggle to eat. It's going to impact the economy. Um, you know, just, it's going to literally hit from the marketplace to the table. Every area of life is going to struggle. And for three and a half years, the Bible says, it has not rained. And in our particular story, Ahab and Elijah are about to meet for the first time during that three and a half years. And we get to watch what happens between them. So here we are, 1 Kings chapter 18 in your sermon notes, verse 17. When he, that's Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of, Egypt, of, of Israel? Now, the word troubler is a Hebrew word that refers to you know, one who wrecks havoc like a pestilence or a plague. You're the, you're the plague of our country. Because of you, it hasn't rained, is what Ahab is accusing. Elijah of. And then in verse 18, Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. And then he says in verse 19, what's gonna create for us a cosmic showdown. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, kind of the female equivalent, who eat at Jezebel's table. So when I read this, the theologian in me rises up and I say, how big was that table? That's about as, that's you, I usually go to the surface stuff first. And I, you know, what they're saying is, is you know, these, these prophets have allegiance all the way into the most significant seats of government. This is a picture of, turning corporately away from God such that the seats of power are aligned with these false gods. And Elijah has said to Ahab, now call everybody together and I want you to bring all those prophets and I want us to have a showdown. So in verse 20, in verse 20, here's what happens. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Very tall mountain in the area very visible point, a gathering point. If you visited today, there's some very uh, uh, level pieces of ground near the plateau of that hill. So there they are. And Elijah went before the people and here's what he said. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. Now you have to get a picture of the scene. There's 450 prophets of Baal, there's 400 prophets of Asher kind of the the female equivalent, and then there's a big crowd that has gathered to watch. And there's Elijah and the king. And Jezebel somewhere, you know, in the shadows, watching what's happening. And Elijah gives a rallying call like prophets are known to do. And he says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to choose today. Are you going to serve the one true God who brought you out of Egypt, who gave promises through our father Abraham, who said that the whole world would be blessed through him and he would use you as his chosen people to demonstrate his love to the world? Or are you going to put your hope and trust in the Baals? And the people say nothing. They can't make a decision. They can't make a decision. One of the most important questions ever to be asked in the pages of the Bible. But remember, when we, when we read the stories of the Bible, it's not just a history lesson about them. These things that we read about actually speak today. They speak very powerfully if we'll listen to what's going on in our world around us. But not just our world around us. Very often, literally what's going on in your world. It's a call for every single follower of Jesus to ask a simple question. Are there areas in my life where I hold allegiance to the one true God, but I've left pockets undelivered to him? Do I waffle, do I waver, that's the word that was used here, do I waver between two opinions, God and not God? God and other gods. Allegiance to God, but true deep allegiance to other things as well. It's interesting that the NIV translators here use the word waver. There are other words that could be used just as well. You could use the word waffle between two opinions. A couple of versions use the word limp. How long would you limp between two going back and forth? You don't run in a clear direction either way, but you literally limp from one. That one doesn't satisfy you. Limp to another. And Elijah says, today is the day to make a decision. Now look at verse number 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now he's going to discover later that's not true, but in this moment, he's the one speaking up. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. I'll prepare the other bowl, and I'll put it on wood, but not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And finally the people speak up, and all the people said, what you say is good, or they said, yeah, let's do that. This sounds like a really good thing. And the people from Kentucky pulled out their barbecues and their couches. And they, they got, uh, I'm sorry. They got ready. My family's from West Virginia. We have very few people we can pick on. So, so, <laughs> so they got together and they're going to watch the showdown, man. This is like better than Fireworks. Now, if you're a Christian reading this today, we tend to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And so Christians who've been around church for a while, they know that when you start reading stories like this, you start, start, start figuring out, all right, who represents who in the story? So there's Elijah, and he's like the prophet, right? And then there's the people. And so this is a cosmic struggle between the Lord and things that aren't from God. And what I want you to do is I want you to hold off for a second because there are going to be a few twists and turns in this story that I think bring the point of the story home. So rather than, if you know the story, jumping ahead of me, I'd like you to kind of just, if you can, put yourself into the middle of this story and just try to kind of watch from a 30,000 foot view as to what all is going on. And see the scene of all these people gathering and think about the weight of the proposition in front of the people. The one who answers from fire, that's the true God. The one who answers from fire, that's the true God. verse number 25, take a look at that. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. So they've taken some time, they've gathered the bulls, they've done the whole thing. And since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bowl and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. It's going to be an all-day affair. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. Now at noon, so we're several hours in, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they began to slash themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. The midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. People got bored, turned around, stopped looking at it, started playing with their fidget spinners. They, they were completely not interested because there's nothing happening. How long are you going to waver How long are you going to limp between two options? And then he sets up this situation. Now we're going to read what happens, but we got to park and ponder how this begins to speak to believers in Jesus, and in fact, the world today. I'm somewhat of of a student of people's habits when it comes to church, and it's Challenging for a pastor to preach a passage like this where there's such a strong prophetic person like Elijah who's bold and direct. It's hard to preach about this stuff without being somewhat bold and direct. I mean, you almost have to go out of your way to not talk about the clear implications of a passage like this. It's a call for people who have been Walking away from their commitments to God. At some point in the past, they had deep and reverential commitment. The Lord had their attention. They were making decisions in light of the Lord's values. They were growing, being stretched, coming to trust and know Him more. But over time, that had begun to wane. And in many ways, the systems of their worship were still there. But they had just begun to, over time, subtly shift. From temple to Yahweh, synagogue, to temples to Baals. From the study of God's word revealed through Moses to whatever religious practices were part of the culture. And it happened slowly over a couple hundred years. And they needed a, they needed a wake-up call kind of a a rousing, shaken by the soldier, get up, the house is on fire. We've got to make changes now. I like what Elijah said at the outset of this particular challenge. Look, if Baal is God, serve him. I have a certain respect for that approach to things that are very important. Hey, look, if that's true, if that's real, go ahead and stake your claim on it. I mean, act as if you really believe it. I mean, if bail is it, man, give yourself all the way over to it and forget this serving Jehovah stuff. Forget the God of our past and let's go for what's happening now. Let's give ourselves to it. It would be as if Elijah were to stand in front of a group of people today and he might say something similar. We don't have Baals, but we have similar kinds of things. He might say something like this. So if money is really your thing, man, then give it your full heart, and go for it. Like, go all the way for it. Put off all restraint and get all you can. Make your life about the acquisition of that thing that gives you the power to buy and sell and gives you a sense of security. I mean, give yourself to it. There's a certain integrity when your values align with your behavior, when you get serious about what's going on with you. And Elijah was begging the question, not saying to people, you need to make a few tweaks. But asking them to ask a much deeper question. What's really got a grip on your heart? What's really going on in there? And if you're committed to this bail stuff, man, do it. But if you're committed to the Lord, do that. Quit limping between the two options. I don't have a whole lot of intellectual respect for a guy like Richard Dawkins, who's a famous atheist. But I, I respect his integrity as a thinker, even though I don't particularly like his arguments and don't see a lot of validity in them. Here's what I like. I mean, he's like all out there. He's an atheist. Like I don't believe in this God stuff. So anything that is, you know shadows of the God stuff and the God values, and that can be rejected because I am 100% convinced there isn't a thing out there and I'm not gonna give my life to things that don't exist. This is his thinking. And so he is bold and brash and out there. To me, that has a certain ring of integrity to it that kind of goes against what I would call the weekend warrior Christian who says, yeah, I... I'm kind of like my God stuff, and so church for me has become somewhat of a a hobby. I don't say this stuff, but in effect, that's what happened. And it happens perhaps over time if you're a second or third generation Christian. Where you haven't let go fully, but if you were to be hard-pressed to say... What really grips your heart, is it your commitment and God's commitment to you and yours to him, is that what has really gripped your heart? You'd be hard-pressed to build a case for yourself. Forget everybody else. Just for yourself, that God is really the value in your life, the thing you gravitate towards, the thing that defines your identity, the thing that holds your security. You'd be hard-pressed. Many followers of Jesus would be hard-pressed. That's when God often sends a prophet into a person's life. And prophets in the Old Testament had a real interesting run. I mean, did you catch the greeting that Elijah the prophet, who has very little official power, gets from the king, who holds all the official power? Is that you, you troubler? This is this is what happens to prophets. This is what happens to people sometimes who speak truth that people don't want to hear it. You're a troublemaker, you've Trouble things. Now, I think Elijah would wear this hat, this title, with boldness. Yes, I'm a troubler. Somebody has said the role of a good pastor is to comfort the afflicted. That makes sense. But it's also to afflict the comforted, those that are too comfortable. That's what this story does. It causes us to say, what really has a grip on my heart? You know, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a horrible hobby. It'll leave you uncomfortable and unhappy. A relationship with Jesus sold out is supposed to produce in our lives peace and joy. But there's a lot of miserable Christians. And often at the root of their misery is nothing that God has done, but it's a loose holding on to God. Almost as if he is the kind of idol that if you'll worship that enough, then he'll give you what you want. Much like the very simplistic relationship the people of Israel were having with the Baals. You want rain? Worship the God of thunder. You want kids? Worship the bale of fertility. You want a happy marriage? Worship the bales that refer to your ancestors. You want health? Worship the bales that bring health. You want to bring confusion to your enemies? Worship the God of war. Give yourself over to it. And not just in a small way. I mean, really commit. In the deep worship, as we read here, the worship, the practice was, man, when you're really fervent, go ahead and commit. Make a blood commitment. Cut yourself. Bleed out a little bit. I mean, give yourself into this. Blood, sweat, and tears. And if you do it, you might be able to control a little bit of the outcome. Believe it or not, some followers of Jesus, without thinking through it very deeply, they have a similar type of connection to the God of the universe who molded them and shaped them. Their basic understanding is this. If I'll obey, he'll give me what I want. If I'll give myself over, I'll get the good stuff that got me motivated often to pursue him to begin with. These are followers of Jesus who often lack joy, and walking through their Christian life is not a delight but a drudgery. Because they have basically traded, if they're not careful, one idol for another idol. And that the God of the universe says, I am not served through the slashing of skin, through your little dance parties where you demonstrate your fervency. I have a relationship with you based on one thing only, my good grace towards you. And because I'm in control of the whole thing, you can afford to trust me with every detail of your life. In fact, every detail of your life you don't trust me with, that thing right there is going to become for you an irritant. My family and I are not big beach people, in part because I've never been a big beach person. I never really enjoyed it. I never understood going and sitting. I don't tan well, and so you go and you get sunburned. And then the most irritating thing, and I don't mean to be crass, but, men, you'll be able to relate to this, is have you ever gotten sand in your swim trunks? I do not enjoy this. I'm supposed to be having a great time, and I can't rinse. Now, the Europeans don't mind that. If you go to the Florida beaches... They stand there under the showers in their little patch of cloth. (laughs) And I'm like doing this to my kids, you know, don't look kind of stuff, right? But I can't stand the sand in my shorts. It's an irritant. It's supposed to promise enjoyment and relaxation and sunshine and connecting with nature, bringing in the air and positive energies and all that junk. But I only can think about that one piece that's just irritating. That's what the Christian faith is for somebody that goes, Give me just a little bit of God. And I don't want it all. God is not the kind of God you can hold at bay and say, I'll take this, but not that. I mean, to be God, he has to be God of it all. And so the Baal prophets began to cut and dance. And there's two characteristics, by the way, of false gods. They always require strenuous effort to please them. Incredible amounts of effort. I might offend here, but the false God Allah says, strict obedience to me, and without obedience, you're in jeopardy. God says, through grace, by faith, in the work of Jesus Christ. Secular gods are no less demanding. The gods that promise prosperity demand incredible allegiance and alignment through school systems. Kids have to get the right into the right schools, play the right sports, be in the right clubs in order to get into the right schools again, to get the right kinds of jobs and be aligned. Incredible amounts of strenuous effort. Some of these problems are not that they're bad in and of themselves, but people are notorious for taking good things and making gods out of them. People do it with their spouses all the time. Listen, ladies, your husband makes a pretty good husband. He makes a horrible God. And if you are looking to him to satisfy you and fulfill your deepest longings, he'll be able to do a piece of that along the way. That's part of partnership. But he, a husband can never satisfy the place in your life that the king of the universe is supposed to occupy. If money is the thing, it's never going to fully satisfy. And at the end of the day, you're going to leave it all behind anyway. As they say, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Doesn't happen. These things make, they're, they're good in the right place, but they make horrible gods. False gods always push you to strenuous amounts of effort. So if popularity is the thing, you've got to figure out who likes you and who doesn't like you. And you post on Facebook and you count the posts and who likes you afterwards and who comments. It's kind of like one big American Idol, you know, uh, audition. You're trying to please everybody, especially Simon, just to get him to say, yeah, you're pretty good at that. And people give themselves to that kind of thing. And if Beauty is your thing. You know, you Zumba all day long and you got to get everything just right. And these things have to be firm and these things have to be soft and these clothes have to be tight and these clothes have to be loose. And you can't go out and they're not bad in their place, but they make horrible gods. But if people would stop to think sometimes for me, the gods I want to prop up, the gods that vie for my attention, I have to stop and say that's not where my identity really is. Those are false gods. And I want you to like me, but if God likes me, it's good enough. And I want a healthy and vibrant marriage, but I don't need my wife to satisfy my identity because my identity has been sealed with Christ. So Tim Keller writes, one of my favorite authors, you can pick up any book by him and you'd enjoy it. Tim Keller writes, how do you know there are idols in your life? He says, look for the dancing and look for the slashing. Where are you giving strenuous effort? Where are you paying ridiculous amounts of sacrifice to get some sense of permanence, some sense of comfort, security, or enjoyment? So the Elijah then says to all the prophets of Baal, perhaps you need to shout louder. Now the NIV translation from the Hebrew into English uses the phrase, he's deep in thought or he's busy. They clean that up a little bit because they knew it would be read in church. What it literally says, he's deep in thought. Perhaps he's on the potty. He's got the fan on. doing his work. That's what it literally, it's a a euphemism. Maybe your gods are taking a break. In verse 30, then Elijah called all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Think about that phrase. On the top of this mountain, there was an altar built to the true God, and Elijah's about to do business, but before he can even do business, he's got to repair it. I think about sometimes families where there's a lot of good stuff that could happen, but there's some repair work that needs to be done to even get ready for the good thing. I thought about my life at different seasons where I had drifted and not even realized it. And even to kind of get back to center, I had to do some repair work, had to let God do some repair work. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around the around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed, very large vats of seed, So a big ditch around it. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down from around the altar even, and it filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. Look, listen to this prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. He's hearkening back to a better day there. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is the heart cry of a true spiritual leader. Not that there's some self-aggrandizing fulfillment in the role, but that people's hearts turn towards the Lord. That's what this church strives to be about. And when we're good and doing our mission well, what we do is we help people turn their hearts towards the Lord. People who've never had a relationship with Jesus and people who've had it, but it's been a while since they've really leaned in and they've asked tough questions of themselves, like what really has my heart's attention. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. The fire was so hot and immediate, it came down and boom, God had spoken. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And they made their decision. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anybody get away. Seize them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Yeah, the Israelite history of the Old Testament is not some clean anesthetized version. And you read it, and I am sometimes appalled at things like that statement. People are killed. But if you pause for just a moment, and while I won't necessarily give the whole theology of why that happens here, I don't have time, I want to challenge you to realize that this is a metaphor and a picture for us. And it's a picture of the death and destruction and how... Serious, you and I have to be about making sure that God has the attention of our heart, that we're not weekend Christians, that we haven't added faith to our life, but it in fact has consumed us. There's a great miracle here. Fire falls from heaven. But I have to remind you, in light of the New Testament, this is not the greatest miracle that can happen when God answers a prayer and gives us something or proves himself Because of the resurrection of Jesus that is recorded for us in the pages of the Scripture, we know that the greatest miracle of all time is not when fire fell to earth, but when God raised His Son who was dead from the earth. And that miracle was the miracle in which God spoke once and for all and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that He was the most significant and powerful God in the universe and every other God is nothing but a peon. In light of his power and his dominance, he did not simply conquer death. He literally obliterated it. Jesus hung on a cross. His heart was pierced with a spear. He was put in a tomb. And at the end of three days, he's not knocking on the door saying, hey, could somebody let me out? His heart wasn't just restarted, he wasn't just revived. The stone is rolled away, he's obliterated death. He goes to the place of death and grabs hold of its authority. The Bible uses the language of he grabs the keys. He has the authority. And God proves once and for all that every other God that offers itself a place in your life stands in the shadow of the one true God. Now the next part of the story is important for us. First Kings chapter 18, verse 41 through 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel. He bent down to the ground. He put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea. He's praying, he says to his servant. And he went and he looked. And there's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back and look. So the seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and he tucked his cloak into his belt. He, like, lifts up his his skirt, because the men wore skirts in that day, but you wouldn't want to fight them because they'd kill you. So he he put his skirt in, and he runs ahead of Ahab. He outruns the chariot all the way to Jezreel. And God answers to the people. In fact, he is the one who true God, deserving of your allegiance. Let's make four quick observations. False gods versus the one true God. False gods require strenuous effort. The one true God is known by grace through faith. Allah offers a lifestyle. Buddha offers repentance and reconciliation and repair over multiple lives. God offers his son Jesus Christ through grace received to us by faith. It's a very different way. Other gods say, worship me, give yourself to me, dance for me. And God sends his son, Jesus, and says, I bring myself and I give myself away to you. It's a big difference. He's the one true God. False gods mutilate you. And the true God was mutilated for you. False gods will leave you empty and vacant and destroyed. You know you've read, you've seen people who've given their lives to things that aren't worth giving their lives to, and it always leaves them broken. You can never be popular enough to sustain. You can never be pretty enough. It's fleeting. You can never have enough money. Nothing the world offers. And God comes along and says, I don't want you to dance and slash. In fact, I'll take that pain on myself and I'll give myself. Bruised and battered, he hangs on a cruel cross and he gives his innocent life for us. False gods false gods are ultimately powerless and the one true God answers by miracles. That relationship may bring joy to your life, it may bring happiness but it will never take the place that God wants to hold in your life. That job, that opportunity, that relationship, that intimacy, they can be good. They make horrible gods. And ultimately, they're powerless. Uh, They're a powerless foundation upon which for you to build your life. But God has shown through Jesus himself and through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that he is more powerful and that he can be dependent upon for you to build your life. Number four, false gods lead to soul drought. They'll dry you up, but the true God brings a deluge of refreshment. It began to rain in the land of Israel. Now the story begins with Elijah saying, "Quit limping between two options," and it ends with Elijah outrunning a chariot. And you're you're forced to evaluate limping versus running. Elijah, the Bible says, the spirit of God comes on him and he runs as fast as he can. And I think if I had to put it in a sentence, this story is a call to followers of Jesus to stop limping and start running to him, running in his power, running with him at the center, with him at the engine of your soul. It'll affect how you do relationships. It'll affect what you do with your free time. It will affect how you forgive. It will affect how you spend. It will affect how you give. It will affect every single area of your life. If God be God, serve him. And let everything else go. That is the call to every single follower of Jesus through this story. And he has demonstrated his great power at work in this world over and over and over again, primarily through the person of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we don't have to give ourselves to false gods. There was a brave group of young missionaries about 150 years ago or so that came to be called the one-way missionaries. The reason they were called that is they bought one-way tickets to the mission field. And they would buy a coffin and they'd pack all their earthly belongings into a coffin and they'd ship it with them off to the mission field. They had no intention of coming back. They had no fear of death because they had already committed to giving their full lives over to him. And there was a young man by the name of A.W. Milne who for 35 years served on near the Fiji Islands in a place known still at that time for headhunters and to be very hostile to any outsiders. he gave his life 35 years there. And when he finally passed away, he had brought incredible amounts of conversion and spiritual renewal and, and the life and the gospel of Jesus to that community. When he died, one of the locals said of him these words, when he came here, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. What empowers that kind of commitment? What makes a man run like that? Well, they've decided that they're going to follow Jesus and that nothing else will grab their attention away. There won't be a single beautiful young lady that's worth cashing in their integrity and their life with Jesus for. There's no call on their life that would ever transcend the call to be a man of God or a woman of God every single person in this room is called to run after the things of God and pull out all the stops. When that happens, God promises to refresh your soul. So what I want to do for us right now is I want you to grab out your Connect cards and let's take a step or two in the direction of running, even as we're talking this morning. So we've spent a good amount of time now going through a story in the Old Testament but I want to remind you that this story is only a shadow of the reality. And the reality is that Jesus came and gave His life. And God not only had the power to bring lightning into the world, and He He had the power to literally send Himself to live among humankind and give His life on a cross. And the Bible says that if you will acknowledge your need of a Savior and put your trust in the work that Jesus has done on the cross and in His resurrection, that you can have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. It's not about slashing and dancing. It's not about what you do, but it's about what He has done. And I want to give you a chance to use that pen and check next step A that says, Today, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you'd like to do that, would you check the box and pray with me? In just a moment, put the card in the offering bucket and let us communicate with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or perhaps today you need to choose to be baptized. And while we're in this space, there's two middle school students getting baptized in the first service and four in the second service. And they're going public with their friends. I'm not ashamed for you to know that I'm walking with Jesus. That's a bold move for a middle schooler. And maybe you just need to go ahead and do it. And get, get off the fence and go ahead and get baptized. You check the box, it starts that conversation. Our next step C says this. I've been limping along with indecision with Jesus, but today I'm deciding to run. We're gonna pray, and I'd like for you to do a little business with God. And if there are areas in your life where you're compromising and you know He's called you to something more, and you're not walking in obedience, you don't do obedience to get God's favor. He's given you His favor and it overwhelms us and it gives us power then to live the life that He's called us to live. Just check the box and we'll pray with you about that this week. Now, next step D says, I've been treating church like a hobby, but today I'm gonna step further in. If you'll check this box, we'll send you some opportunities to do that. And listen, if you, for some reason, can't commit to our church, we love you enough that I want you to hear me. Go find a church you can commit to. If there's something here that is a block for you, Do yourself and your family and everybody that loves you a favor and go find a local family of God. Give yourself to them and be in all the way, be a part of the work that's happening there. We think this is a pretty good place to do that. And next step E says, hey Ben, I know it's a few weeks away but I'll go ahead and commit to inviting a friend to 4C's Food Truck Rally. That's happening the third Sunday of September great event plan it's going to be an awesome opportunity for you to bring people to church who don't know yet the full power of the creator of the universe and his activity in their lives let's pray about these things right now Heavenly Father I want to thank you for these stories that you've preserved for us in what we call the Old Testament yeah they're old but their message is timeless and we're grateful to you for what you're doing still calling men and women to a relationship with you God, my prayer is that my brothers and sisters in this room would pull out all the stops. Whatever is vying for attention in their hearts, whatever has captured their imagination, that's not you, God, I pray that you would reveal it for the idol that it is. Some pretense of having it all together, some security placed elsewhere, some sense of meaning that doesn't ultimately bring you glory. God, would you help us today to tear down idols in our hearts and turn our attention to the one true God? Father, I pray for the men and women in this room that are saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. I can't save myself, and I trust the work you've accomplished on the cross and in your resurrection. I give myself to you. Lead my life. I want to follow you. Father, I pray that this church would serve a prophetic role in this community, that people would come in and the truth would be spoken and there would be warmth and ultimately, God, people would be drawn to you, that lies of the culture and lies of our enemy would be exposed. And they'd find boldness to stand up, much like Elijah, say to the world around them, you'd make your decisions, but I've decided to follow the one true God. God, would you help us run after you? I pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.